Let me invite you to turn with me to, in your copies of God's Word, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm not, I'm not sure if the words will be on the screen or not, but if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 5 through 10 of this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've come out of a season of, of Advent where we've celebrated and we've considered the first Advent of Christ, his first coming as a baby. And this morning I want us to actually consider and think on the second coming of Christ, the second Advent. And we'll do that using this passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 5 through 10. Uh, the first and second letters of, Thess- of Thessalonians could be called the the letters of Christ's second coming. It comes up again and again throughout these two letters. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul in every chapter but the first one mentions and speaks of the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And this letter, the second letter, in many ways begins with Paul drawing the hearts of, of the people of Thessalonica, of Thessalonica to the second coming. And so these letters continue to bring before us the second coming of Christ. The believers here in this church have faced great hardships, great persecutions, anxieties, and Paul, the pastor, is going to carefully, with a pastor's heart, he's going to draw their eyes to consider Christ's second coming, his coming again. Uh, there are frequent, frequent references across the New Testament to the second coming of Christ. It uses a variety of words and expressions. And, and as we find them across the New Testament, at times they are intended to remind us, remind believers of our pilgrim, uh, pilgrim life as believers in a, in a strange world. At other points, it's to revive our resolve to obedience. We find that at times when Paul draws our eyes to the second coming, it's to, res- to revive our resolve to obedience. And then occasionally, it's to reinforce the reason for hope in the midst of suffering. And that's really what we find here in 2 Thessalonians 1, is Paul's going to draw our hearts to the reason that we can have hope because of Christ coming again. Before we look to the passage, would you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Let's pray once more for the reading of God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, it's living and active. We ask now that it would do a work on us. Father, would you um, form us and fashion us after this word, this living word, as we, as we hear it read as we hear it preached, Father, I ask that you would help me to be faithful to this word as I preach. Would untrue things fall away? And would true things that you have for your people be remembered? We ask, Father, that you would help us. Help us by this word. We need your help. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning of verse 5. This is God's word to us. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction 
those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Amen. We thank God for his inerrant word. During World War II, on the Pacific front, hundreds of thousands of men were held as POWs. Most of them were mistreated, malnourished, in many cases barely hanging on to life. One of those POWs was Louis Zamperini. His story has been made famous in the book Unbroken, also a movie. As the author of that book documents life as a POW, she makes it abundantly clear that there was one chief thing keeping those many thousands of men alive, and that was hope. Hope. Hope that the war would soon end, that they would return to be back together with their families. Even when there was not enough food to sustain the body, there was, for many of them, enough hope to sustain the soul. Hope is a powerful thing, a most important mindset, a lens through which we can view the world, especially as believers. This is no less true for the Christian living in every day and age as it was for those POWs in terrible conditions. The believers in Thessalonica showed steadfast faith in the face of persecutions and afflictions by unbelievers. They lived at a crazy time in a crazy place marked by frequent ridicule. The loss of status, security, jobs, even family members, family ties for their faith in Christ, for believing the true gospel. I wonder if you can relate to that. Some of you perhaps can relate to some of that. And however you might answer that question, it is likely that you have experienced the sting of the sorrows, the uncertainties, and the insecurities of our fallen world. And likely you know the taste in your bodies, in your minds, within your families perhaps even. The sting and the, the stain, the stress of sin. If so, Paul would direct your eyes to the great hope for believers. Christ will come again. Christ will come again. It is for hope for the believer that Paul speaks in our passage of the second coming of Christ. So let me call you this morning, set your hope on the second coming of Christ, believer. Set your hope on the second coming of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 1, the second coming of Christ is held up for us for our hope as it means three things. First, the second coming of Christ means just retribution for the enemies of God. Second, Christ's second coming means just rest for the people of God. And third, Christ's second coming means just regard 
for the Son of God. So first, it means just retribution for the enemies of God. Second, just rest for the people of God. And third, just regard for the Son of God. First, Christ's second coming means just retribution for the enemies of God. The passage in verse 5 begins to speak of this evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And it leaves us with a question, what is this righteous, what is this evidence of the righteous judgment of God? The answer will then come in what follows in verses 6 to 10. It sets the evidence in the context of the believer's suffering and in the second coming of Christ. And that threading through this entire passage, verses 6 through 10, is the idea that Christ's second coming will bring with it what is just before God, what is righteous, what is right before God and for his people. And for his people. And we consider this first by considering that his second coming means just retribution for the enemies of God. In popular, in popular culture, if, if it speaks of God at all, it speaks of God and, and treats God like an emotional support, build a bear, and turns John's stunning statement that God is love into love is God. Despite this, the testimony of Scripture is that God is love and that God is perfectly holy, all-knowing, all-powerful, unchanging, and that all his loving is just. And all his justice is loving. Men, by nature of sin and apart from the grace of God, become children of wrath, lovers of self and of the world, not lovers of God. James, in his letter, says that the person who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In verse 8 of our passage, in two parallel phrases, Paul describes enemies of God as those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So that an enemy of God is any person who refuses to acknowledge God and who willfully, persistently disobeys his authority and his word. And then because God is covenantal and he makes himself covenantally known to his people in grace and kindness to his people, those who are enemies of God become enemies of his people. It should be said that God's people and the enemies of God's people, they can, they can live together in relative harmony. We can live together without conflict very often. We can work together be friendly neighbors, share interests together without persecution. And yet there are times, and, and at times very often, where conflict rises, it becomes clearer, and where suffering caused more severe. From the, from the very beginning, from the very earliest pages in many ways, we see it already in Cain and Abel. We see it in almost every page of Scripture, this conflict between those who believe God's word, who trust his word, who love his word and those who don't. If we're willing, we see it all around us, upon our screens, in our schools, on our streets. Paul speaks to God's people as those who are suffering at the hands of enemies. 
He speaks of the suffering in verses 6 to 7. Do you see there in verses 6 to 7 the emphasis on affliction? Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted. This word used for affliction carries the full sense of anything causing either internal distress or exterior harm. And words indeed sometimes more obvious and sometimes less. And for the hope of believers, Paul holds up the suffering of God's people in this life to the light of the second coming of Christ. We find this in the larger section of verses six to nine. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you when he comes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The second coming of Christ when he is revealed from heaven brings just repayment, holy vengeance for those who make themselves enemies of God and his people and who remain such. Paul speaks of Christ's coming as a reality. When he comes, he says, not if, but when Christ comes. He is coming back, and his coming is called here a revealing. By that, he means the, a veil or a sheet has been taken away, and what has been hidden, what was there but was hidden, is now made manifest, has been revealed. Christ is revealed as Lord before the watching world. Notice the public nature of his appearing, of his revealing. He is made manifest with his angels. When we consider this passage along with others, and we, the, the, the picture that comes into view is that, that of Christ appearing with multitudes of angels, a far-reaching cry of command, the blasting of the trumpet of God, an abrupt rendering of judgment and flaming fire. Flaming fire is so very often in Scripture spoken of to speak of God's holy and just judgment. There is nothing secret here. It is public before all flesh, and it is a consummating event. It's a consummating event. His coming brings with it that moment in a courtroom. After all the statements and testimony has been heard and, and everyone is, is made to stand, and the judge or the jury reads out the final decision. Everything in, in, that, in that courtroom has been leading up to that, waiting for that moment. And now it has come, bringing swift finality. At his coming before all the world, he brings consummating judgment on all the world. For the enemies of God, the judgment publicly declared is that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul's focus here is not to explain what all of this means in minute details. His purpose is to offer hope to suffering believers by stressing that just judgment is coming for enemies of God. We do see that the judgment is temporally eternal. It's eternal and locationally, it is away from the presence of the Lord. They will be left for all eternity. 
at the final words of Jesus, depart from me, away from me. The enemies of God will suffer eternally, spiritually, what Adam and Eve suffered physically when they were, when they were thrust from the Garden of Eden. Separation from the presence, literally from the face of the Lord forever. That is final judgment on that day. Let me, let me just make sure it's very clear that up until that day, there is hope for those who now don't believe. But this is for them even to be a warning. Don't wait. Don't wait till tomorrow to believe today. There is hope for those who right now are enemies of God, but there will on that day, when he comes, that will be, that's the final word. The final word. Paul speaks of this just retribution for the hope of afflicted believers that we might persevere, that you might bear up under trials. Paul writes in Romans 12, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Christ is coming again, and he brings just retribution. Vengeance is his, he will repay at his coming. Bear up, believer. That's Paul's encouragement. Endure, persevere, set your hope. Christ's second coming means just retribution for the enemies of God. Second, Christ's second coming means just rest for the people of God. The righteous judgment coming with Christ revealing his coming means rest for God's people. For those who have believed the testimony of Christ, for believers, the righteous judgment of God, your pronouncement at his coming is rest, it's relief. The Greek of verses six to seven reads literally, it is righteous from God to repay those who afflict you with affliction and to you who are afflicted with rest. That's the just repayment for his people, rest, relief. This is rest from something and it is rest with someone. It is rest from something. Christ's coming again will bring with it the end of all suffering for his people. This includes an end to all affliction by the enemies of God's people. This will be a final sweeping end. Again, uh, in the story of Unbroken in the life of Louis Zamperini and those many POWs, there came an all-encompassing moment when the war ended the physical suffering of the POWs at the camps ceased and, and their captors began to face their own judgment. But the suffering of the men, the suffering of those POWs did not end with the end of the war. Many of them, many of the men suffered for years from psychological and physical affliction caused by their time in that POW camp. But for Christ's people, for you, believer, his coming means the full and final end to affliction. Rest from suffering, relief from sorrow and sadness and strain. A day when tears will be no more. Rest so full and complete that it will begin to work backward 
as C.S. Lewis says, and turn even the agony into a glory. It's a rest from the need to persevere. Perseverance by its very nature is, is only suited for life on this side of Christ's second coming. There is a day coming when all persecutions of Christ's pilgrim people will be brought to a final full end. Wait for it. Hope for it. He also comes when he comes. He comes to bring rest with someone. That is himself. Here's the hope of all hopes. Paul speaks of it in verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who who have believed. Those two little words, in and among, they carry a great deal of, of theological significance. These prepositions convey the presence of Christ with his people. Justice for the enemies of God results in away from the presence of the Lord. But for his people, it is his very presence forever. He will be glorified in their presence with them near. He will be with and among his people. In the Old Testament, the Lord speaks often of his being with his people. He promises Emmanuel, God with us. We've just celebrated his coming, the, re- the full reality of his coming. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the present word, Christ, in his final words before he ascends, he's with his disciples in his final words to them. Behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. This is already true. Christ is already present with you now, believer, by his spirit. That's the testimony of scripture. You have now all that you need of Christ's presence, Christ's presence to support you, sustaining you for all the days of your, of your pilgrim life through your sufferings, your sorrows, and your strains, for the afflictions suffered at the hands of wicked men and the sufferings of life in this dark valley of the shadow of death. But at his second coming, God with us reaches its, its full height. What you have in the form of a bud now will then on that day reach full blossom, blossom into maturity when you are with Christ forever, the fullness of Christ forever. That's the hope that Paul captures in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He writes there to believers who are weighed down with anxiety, the bite of death. Fellow Christians have been dying, and these believers there are, are, are weighed down with anxiety. What is going to happen? They've died before the, the Lord comes again. What happens to them? And Paul, that pastor, he writes to them, telling them, he, he sets their attention upon the second coming of Christ, and at his coming, he says, All those both who have died in the Lord and those still living will together meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he adds, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here are words of encouragement. What is the hope of the believer in the face of death, both for yourself and for your fellow believers? That not even death 
Not even death can keep you from being with the Lord together, enjoying the Lord together forever. The confession of faith defines everlasting life as the Lord's people receiving that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. You see, sometimes we, when we think about heaven, we think about those pearly gates and the streets of whatever it might be, the shining streets. But heaven is a place where we will be with Christ forever. That's our hope. That should be your hope. The person, even more than the place, the place means that you'll be with him. You'll be with Christ. Do you find comfort in this? Do you find comfort in this? Does this give you hope? Hope for that man in the POW camp was that, that maybe he would get to hug his mother one more time, hold his wife one more time. Hope for the Christian is that there is coming a day when you will always be with the Lord entering into an eternal Sabbath rest with Christ. Wait for that rest. Hope for that rest. Set your hope on the second coming of Christ. Third and finally, Christ's second coming means just regard for the Son of God. As is the case in the first advent, so also in the second we see that the glory of Christ is of central significance at his Second coming, his saints, all who have believed, being in his presence, will glory and marvel in him. Those who have faced the afflictions of this fallen world, who have tasted terrible trials, will in a moment, all at once, turn to glorying and marveling in Christ in full measure. To glory and marvel in Christ is to acknowledge and ascribe to him the full weightiness he deserves. If you'll allow me an illustration here, um, uh, imagine you, you've, you've just attempted to, to lift a great boulder. You've just attempted to lift this great boulder, and, and after doing so, you step back and you say, it really wasn't that heavy. It really wasn't that heavy. It doesn't weigh much at all. You would have failed in that moment to acknowledge the weightiness of the boulder. You, you would have failed to regard the boulderness of the boulder. God's people at the second coming will not fail to acknowledge and ascribe to Christ the full measure of the weightiness that is due to him. You ought to regard the boulderness of the boulder. Christian, you will regard, if you allow me to say it this way, the Christness of Christ when he comes. His glory is the end for which you were saved the goal for which you are being sanctified, the object in which you will spend eternity being enthralled. Paul actually goes into some of that in verses 11 and 12 that we didn't read. He speaks of, of glorifying Christ now in good deeds, even now. You glorify Christ as you obey him, as you obey him as your Lord. Glorying in Christ now, then in full measure, fully completely giving him the due that he is owed. The Christian looks forward to Christ's second coming because it means that Christ will finally be given the full measure 
of the glory due him. He will receive his full honor. He will be regarded his full weightiness fully and finally. The Christian looks forward to this, longs for this, hopes for this, because the Christian is all about Christ. Because the Christian knows that his whole purpose, her chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him now and forever. Is your hope set on Christ receiving his due glory? Is it? Is your hope set on Christ receiving his full glory? Set your hope on the second coming of Christ. Christ will come again. And when he does, on that day, justice will come in full measure. For unbelievers, Christ's coming means just retribution. For Christ's people, his coming means just rest with him. And for Christ, his coming means just regard, full glory, full weightiness for him. Hope for it. Would you pray with me? The full weightiness that you deserve, O oh Christ. May that be true for us. May it be said of us that we are people that glory in you now as best as we can as, as those who still are sinners. But one day, might we long for it, might we hope for it when you will be glorified fully to full measure. Father, would this be our hope? Father, would you set our hope on, on this, the coming again of your Son, on Christ's second coming, his revealing, his appearing, his coming again? Will we hope for it? Will we hope for what it means for us that we get to be with Christ? Help us to believe that, to make that our hope. Would you strengthen us for the days of trial, the days of suffering that we maybe even now are enduring, but that no doubt we will endure. Father, we ask that you would hold on to your people as you have promised. Keep us as a keeping God. Set our hope on Christ. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.